It's, it's good to be back. I mean, it's been all of, oh, I think 45 minutes since the last time I was here. It's just you weren't here. It was the first service. I think since the last time I was here preaching anyway, uh, there's been a few changes in the fact that you've gone to two services, which seems really exciting. And since that also, there seems to be a whole lot of new faces here as well. I don't know if you've noticed that as well. It's good, isn't it? I mean, there's a real sense of buzz, of excitement, of of what God's Spirit is doing here. There's a real sense of a new vision that's upon this church and what He's birthing out of this church. At least this is what I'm sensing. Is this the sort of thing you're sensing as well? Yeah. Again, it's the front row. The the back people just aren't feeling it. They're just not feeling it. Just not feeling it, though. There we go. Now they have their coffee, they're feeling it. That's right. Praise (laughs) Jesus for caffeine. So, uh, uh, as, um, uh, as Glenn mentioned, my name's Richard. I head up an organization called Strength to Strength, which has as its aim to help people succeed with life, to succeed with this life that Jesus said that he came to bring us, but a life that many people have found to be anything but easy, but abundant, you know, this life that seems to be a lot harder than they had possibly imagined. So I work with a team, and our aim is to, to work with people. We, we counsel, we coach, we supervise to help people look below the surface of their mind to discover what's going on there in the basement level of their, of their being that's setting them up, that's causing them to experience whatever it is that they're experiencing in life whether it be that they're struggling with their emotions or whether it be that, they're, that they've got difficulty in relationships and their sexuality and their habits, their addictions, to help people sort of become more aware of what's going on down there that they can begin to affect some of the repairs. The other things that we do is we run a number of different seminars and courses, seminars like the, the Sexually Strong Men uh, seminar that's coming up next week or training in, in uh, counseling and pastoral care development, that kind of thing as well. And we do all of this with the aim to help strengthen the church overall, but also to help people specifically to break through and to break free in their life, to come to the place of finding the freedom that God has called them to, to find the breakthrough that they've been needing that, so that they can live out the life that He has wanted for them. So as you can imagine, I like what I do. It's very rewarding, a whole lot of fun. I mean, who wouldn't enjoy playing with other people's minds? It's just brilliant. So in all of this, this is the sort of thing that we do. And so this morning, really, all I want to do is is paint a bit of an overview, a bit of a picture for you about this area of the mental and emotional health and how that fits into our spirituality and how that fits into our discipleship. Does that sound okay? That's great. I've got a few more nods at the back. Everyone's waking up. This is wonderful. See, it may come as a surprise to you, but I have not always been the paragon of mental and emotional health that you see before you. No, no, it's true. You see, I'm a white middle-class guy, and when I came to faith at age 16, I was a white middle-class Christian guy. So it goes without saying that I had no problems. And I belonged to a white middle-class church, and we all got together, and we were all in agreement that we had no problems. You know, not really. I mean, sure, we weren't perfect, but problems is what other people have. You know, can I get an amen? You know, this is the sort of thing that, you know, other people struggle with, so we don't really need to talk about it at all. (laughs) 
So in that, you can imagine uh, that my surprise when the spotlights of mental and emotional health hit my life and, and did a reality check on me, that that was quite a rude awakening for me. You know, when I started to realize that I can't just blame other people for how I'm feeling, yeah, that wasn't a good time. When I realized that the things that I was struggling with in life, the turmoil that I was facing, or all the things that I were up against, primarily wasn't to do with other people and the situation and the context and the environment around me and outside of me, but it was primarily a reflection of what was going on inside of me. <laughs> yeah, that wasn't a happy time. And you know, when I looked at all of this and I started to look at all of my issues, I had to go... You know, they're pretty obvious, Richard. This isn't so hard to see. So why hadn't I seen it up till now? And I felt like God said to me, he said, well, Richard, if you are an addict in a world of addicts, how do you know you've got a problem? Do you get that? And so when I was also looking at what was going on in me, I had to ask, so why hadn't I been changed before now? Why hadn't I been transformed? I mean, I came to faith. I love Jesus. I worship. I read my Bible. I pray. I do all the things I'm supposed to do. So why hadn't I been fully transformed? Now, don't get me wrong. When I came to faith, I certainly felt change, but it also seemed limited. You know, when I was 16 and I, coming to faith, I felt like that the Holy Spirit led me through the sort of different rooms of this apartment block of my being. And, and he would come to, you know, one room at a time and just say, Richard, shall we address what's inside this room? To which I would say to him, let's not. And the thing is, he would work with me through each of these different rooms and it would hurt. It wasn't pleasant. But I felt change come into my life to a degree. You see, for the, about the first 16 years of my life, I suffered on and off from depression. And then when I came to faith, my depression lifted, mostly. But I still had very strong bouts of depression, where I really had some very dark days. And another thing that I remember really wrestling with and struggling with that, that frustrated me about myself was I, I just felt like I was so thin-skinned. Just how important it was for other people to like me, to have a good opinion of me in order for me to like myself. And I found that, you know, when other people weren't giving me what I wanted, when they might not pay me attention, they might not pay me the compliment that I wanted, whatever it was, just how quickly I could take offense, and when I discovered that the speed at which you take offense is a good indicator of how mentally and emotionally unhealthy you are, <laughs> the joy just kept coming. <laughs> and so when I was in that space, you know, I, I, I lifted my head up and I realized it's not just me. You know, everyone around me seemed to be struggling in some form or other. You know, I would see people who, who love the Lord with all their heart, but they're up to their eyeballs and debt. I would see people who are great prayer warriors, but they're still harboring bitterness and resentment. I would see people who love to lose themselves in worship and then go home and yell at their kids. I would see people who had been serving the Lord faithfully for years but they were struggling with all manner of habits and addictions. You know, they were just drinking way too much. That they would reach for, for comfort eating to cover over the pain and the loneliness. 
that they might reach for, for pornography or, or, or for restricting their eating. They were reaching for all manner of things just to try to cover up the pain. And not only that, I, I saw a church that really wanted to love one another, to get on well, but they struggled to be able to resolve conflict constructively. Now, to be fair, we all know how to handle conflict badly, don't we? You know, we can end up doing this on a daily basis, really. But to handle conflict constructively, well, that was a whole new ball game for most people. And you see, as I looked at all of this, I realized that primarily this is because we've forgotten where real transformation comes from. There's a guy by the name of Peter Schizero. He's written a book called The Emotionally Healthy Church. I don't know, a number of you may have read this. But in this book, he shares some of his own story in, in a very vulnerable way. But one of the things that I remember catching my attention was that in, in one part of the book, as a Pentecostal pastor, he said he knew what to do when people would come to him with all manner of problems and issues. You know, if people came and said, I'm struggling with anxiety, or they said, my, my, my marriage is breaking down, or, or I'm caught up in pornography. He said, I knew what to do. He said, I was the man in those times. He said, when people came to me with all issues or whatever, I could handle it. He says, what I would do is I would listen to them, and then I would pray, and then I would hope for the best. And he said, what frustrated him was basically nothing changed. And that's because we've forgotten where real transformation comes from. And we've had a tendency to separate out this area that we call the spiritual from this area that might be the area of our mind, our emotions, which is basically the area of our soul. And we know about this spiritual area, don't we? That's our zone. We own that zone. That, that's where we pray. That's where we worship. Where we lay hands on people. That's where we fast. We tithe. We know this stuff. But we would look with rather suspicious eyes across to the other side, where the area that we might leave to the psychologists and the counselors and the psychotherapists, and we would look at that area with a whole lot of suspicion. And to be fair, you know why? Because there's been some pretty wacky things said by some pretty wacky people from over there. But what we discover is far from these two being mutually exclusive, they are in fact inextricably connected. You see, when we look at Scripture, we hear Jesus say, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You know, it's interesting, he didn't say prayer ministry would set you free, although I love prayer ministry. He didn't say that, that fasting would set you free, or that tithing would set you free. And to be fair, nor did he say that counseling would set you free. What he said would set you free is truth. So when you encounter truth, wherever you encounter truth, if it is the truth and you apply it into your being, it's at that place you find freedom. You find you change. And this is why Paul says that we are transformed by the renewing of the mind not by the removal of our mind, as many Christians seem to believe. You know, so that what goes on between our ears, what we think, what we understand, is actually of critical importance. Now, when you think about the gap between your ears, it doesn't seem 
at that great a distance, really, does it? But what we've discovered is that it, there might not be a great distance between the two, but it does go deep. It can go very deep. And you see, because if you look at a person, if, if you look at their behavior, their actions, if you look at what they're doing, if you look at the way they're speaking or what they're avoiding, if you look for what they're reaching as a, as a false comforter, the habits they get in, caught up into, if you look at all that and you peel it back, then underneath that we find a whole bunch of feelings that are pushing people to act or to avoid and so in those feelings, it might be feelings of inadequacy or failure or rejection. It might be anxiety or anger or depression that's lurking there, just causing people to act. But if we grab those feelings, we peel them back even further. We come to an area that's known as a person's self-talk. It's the chatter that goes on in the mind. It's what you are telling yourself. And so if you tell yourself, you're dumb, you're stupid, you failed this, no one likes you, no one really cares for you, you don't really fit in, you don't belong, you can't manage this, it will affect the way you feel and then what you do. I mean, you, and we're constantly talking to ourselves. So even now as you sit here, you might be thinking, chattering away in your brain, this seat's really comfy, I could go to sleep right, right now. I'm really tired after watching the rugby game. You could be thinking, gosh, my bladder's got quite full quite quickly, I wonder when I can slip out and go to the break. You might be thinking that, how did that guy get to be so good looking? I mean, you can manage it, or you can be thinking all manner of things that goes through your mind. And what you think produces what you feel and how you act or what you avoid. But that's probably about as far as most people get. But if we peel that back even more, then down, deep down, in the basement level of your mind, we come to the area to define, to discover what you have concluded about life, about yourself, about God, about other people. What you've concluded, what you've assumed to be true. You see, you're not even necessarily conscious of this. It's in your subconscious. And so what you might believe there will affect, it's what I call the area of your boiler room. It creates the atmosphere for the rest of your being. Now, if deep down in that place, what's down there is truth, the truth that comes in line with God's truth, well, then that's great. You'll find freedom. Your emotions will be constructive. Your actions will be constructive. But if deep down in that place you come across something that isn't in line with the truth, that is in fact what we'd call a lie, whether you're aware of it or not, if you're holding on to that, that's when your life begins to stall or trouble comes into your life. You see, we have an enemy who is known as the father of lies. And so, of course, he comes in to rob, kill, and destroy he only needs one lie in order to enter your life and undermine you in that area, to, to stifle you, to suffocate you, to cripple you, to cause your, your relationships to stall, to, to mess with your emotions and cause you to be overwhelmed with different emotions, to mess with your understanding of your sexuality, to cause you to think that this habit, this, this addiction is going to serve you and is good for you. He comes in to rip off your joy, your freedom, your hope, to crush you as best he can. All he needs is one lie. 
You see, if deep down in the basement level of your mind, if you believed that you are a disappointment to God, it wouldn't matter how many times you heard about God's love and His grace, that would just wash over you and wash off you. And so if you believe deep down in the basement level of your life that that in order for me to be okay, I need you to like me, that you determine whether I'm okay, you determine my worth. And if you don't, then, then I don't feel good about myself. If you're disappointed with me, if you don't like my decision or my choices, then I find it hard to like myself. And so I'm going to have to please you. I'm going to have to make sure that, that, that I do what you like. And I'll be busily second-guessing what you might be thinking about me so that I alter my behavior to suit. Now, the irony there I often find, as I tell a number of my clients, is you are not actually thinking about what they are thinking about you. You're thinking about the worst case of what they're thinking about you. You're not even playing fear in that way. And you see, if deep down in the basement level you believe that really you can only rely on yourself, you can only really rely on yourself in this world, then you find, even in relationships, you feel so isolated, so cut off. Or if you believe that you can pretty much trust anyone, everyone can be taken at face value until they prove otherwise. And then you wonder why. Why do I get so hurt, so used, so abused, so quickly, so easily? He only needs one lie to rob you of your joy, of your hope, of your freedom, of your strength, of your power, of your authority. One lie. You see, there's another verse in the Bible that, that is seemingly innocent that many of you may know. It just sits there. And it's in 2 Corinthians 3. And we read, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Yeah, isn't that nice? But guess what? If you're not experiencing freedom somewhere in your life, guess what? The Spirit of the Lord isn't present there, not to the degree that He wants to be. And that's because he is the spirit of truth. And so when we're holding on to a lie somewhere in our life, whether we mean to or not, we quench the work of the spirit. So I'll see so many people who are struggling with a variety of things, whether it be in their anxiety or their relationships or their eating habits or their drinking habits, and it's like they're behind a door in their, in their being and they're just crying out, Lord, enter in, save me, deliver me, restore me, transform me. And he doesn't, because he, it's like he's on the other side of the door, longing to come in and bring the change and the transformation into our life. But he can't enter in because we've unwittingly locked the door to him. When we hold on to a lie, when we believe a lie, we lock the door to him. And he won't invade your space. He won't violate you. He won't abuse you in that way. He waits for you to unlock the door to him. You see, when you came to faith, when anyone comes to faith, and we say, Jesus, I need you, come enter into my life. He enters into your being, the apartment block of your being, and he flows and enters into every room of your being that's open to him. But some of your rooms, some of your doors are locked. They're barred. They've got to, don't go there, son. Please don't enter in. And so he can't. He's quenched. He stops at that place. 
Which is why we notice that people have a different experience and are changed in different ways when they come to faith. Different doors are unlocked to him. And so it's not until we can recognize what's going on, what, what am I believing, what am I holding on that's actually locking you, that we can begin to start to open the door and let him in. And when the door is open, he flows in with his transformative power and brings freedom. But it starts with us first getting honest. You see, God will meet us wherever we are when we come to him in honesty. The Bible language for that is that God is light and in him there is no darkness. And so in order to to get real with him, we first need to step into the light. We first need to truly be honest, to stop our pretending and to recognize what's really going on in us, our issues, our stuff. And in that place, as we're honest about that, he meets us there. And in that place, we can now repent which means to renounce our loyalty to this lie that we've been holding on to. See, the word repent in in the Greek is metanoio, which means to change your mind. Now, it's not the sort of change your mind that we might often talk about, you know, where we thought we might have KFC tonight, but instead we went for pizza. We changed our mind. This sort of change of mind is a a mind shift. It's a 180 degree shift that says, I don't want to live like that. I don't want to believe that anymore. I renounce that. That, that, that belief inside of me is a lie. It's a liability. Lord, I recognize that and I hand that over to you. So in my place of honesty, I repent in that place. And now his spirit, who is the spirit of truth, can begin to lead us into all truth. Whether that be that he gives us a rhema word that we need it. Whether that be that he highlights something in scripture that we need it. Whether that be he leads us to someone else who can help us make sense of what's going on inside of us. To make sense of what's going on in the mess that we might find and feel like we're in. So that we can discover truth and unlock the door to him. And his spirit can enter in. But it begins with getting honest.